Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm your host, Mandy Johnston, and today we'll be taking a deeper look at the stories that are making the news in business and politics this week. Coming up on today's show, Boris was back in the dock this week as the ex-Prime Minister was hauled in front of the Parliamentary Privileged Committee as part of the investigation into whether he deliberately misled the Commons. We'll catch up with the New York Times in London to get the lowdown on the testimony that he gave and we'll look at his legacy and if he's going to be making a comeback or not. And later on the in the show, we're going to be discussing that issue of losing a very high profile job. We all know that being made redundant can be a difficult experience for anyone. But when it happens to those people who are sitting on C-suite chairs, it can be a very public humiliation. So today we'll be exploring the various issues that high profile people face when they're let go from their roles. And finally, as TikTok is banned by the UK and the Netherlands, we'll ask what makes this platform different from all the others. That's all coming up on today's Taking Stock and you can get in contact with the show on takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, we're going to look at that issue of high profile job losses. Um, As an example, you'll remember that within a week of Elon Musk acquiring Twitter, he cleared out the company's entire C-suite through a mix of either resignations or firings. And it shook the company, but they trundled along anyway. So what is a C-suite exactly? And what's the landscape like here in Ireland for people in that employment bracket? And what issues indeed do they face when they lose their jobs? So joining me now to discuss all of that are Paul McCartney, who's managing partner at the panel. He's also a columnist for The Currency and I'm also joined by Sinead English who's author of CV 101. You're both very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, Mandy. Now, Paul, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with you. Just tell us exactly who makes up a C-suite, what exactly is it in an organisation and what's happening in the landscape here in Ireland at the moment? So, Mandy, uh, the C-suite, very easy. CEO, CFO, CTO, that's where the chief piece comes along. Uh, the landscape on Ireland at the C-suite level has been very good in the last 18 months, two years. There's been a lot of movement at that level. What we're finding in the past, most of the movement was below the C-suite. Now there's more competition for C-suite people than there has been for a while. The market last year was very frothy. The market is coming down a little bit to mean still very good. Mm. Uh what people tend to get mixed up is the news cycle is very much dominated by the tech layoffs, and you mentioned Elon Musk. But we have an SME sector in Rude Health, and we have a situation where at the C-suite level, the people who are leaving those tech companies are now becoming more affordable to SMEs to take on. Mm. And that has meant that the movement at the C-suite level, while not as strong as it was when it was frothy last year, is still quite healthy. Mm. And why do you think that is? Um, Are we kind of, you know, softening into the post-COVID work environment where companies have a better idea of what their organisations look like? I was talking to somebody earlier in the week who said to me, look, 
there's kind of been three phases to this. There's been the COVID, what am I doing with my life and how do I fit in my organisation? Yeah. There's been the COVID, how does our company survive this organisation, get through this pandemic? And now we're in a different environment. Is that something to do with the, the movement cycles? Uh, the government got heavily Chris gets heavily criticised for a lot of things, but I don't think they got enough credit for getting businesses through COVID. We were encouraged to work in the UK, they're encouraged to follow up people. I think that was a hugely important thing that happened. Confidence within SME businesses is quite high. So the bulk of the work I do in the panel at the C-SPIC level is actually dealing with companies who are looking to scale. Mm. Private equity firms, there's an awful lot of money um, around for people to invest. And that means that private equity has been very busy in buying businesses and they're buying those businesses to scale for sale. Mm. And that's what's driving the market for C-suite talent at the moment. Mm. Where C-suite have an issue with COVID is two things. One, where they're the candidate looking for opportunities for themselves. But secondly, where their managers, they have to get used to a whole new way of work. And we're in the middle of an industrial revolution. And those at the C-suite who adapt to that revolution quickest are the ones who are going to get on best. Hmm. Sinead, I might bring you in here adapting to the new environment that's really what it's all about you've written a book, a very successful book uh, called CV 101 what type of advice would you give someone who maybe is in one of those C-suite positions and starting to kind of look around at the environment around them, what's the first thing that they should do? Um, well, I guess the first thing to do is to realise that everybody is dispensable. Um, you know, there is a high chance that your job will be gone just as, as anybody else's job within the company will be gone. So always being prepared and being on the lookout for potential future opportunities and what you're going to do if the day comes when you decide that you've had enough or your managers decide that they've had enough of you. So Preparing, getting things like your CV in order is extremely important. Um, reaching out to your network. And again, you know, the more senior you are, if you're in the C-suite, that's going to be quite a distinctive network of people that you could be potentially reaching out to, putting the feelers out, figuring out, you know, what sort of other opportunities are out there should you decide or it be decided for you um, that it's time to move on. Mm. Um I think there's a huge amount of people out there. If you've been working in a company for a very long time, um, the, it begins to almost feel a little bit like your family. And we see that narrative around companies where they talk about, you know, we're all part of this family, the X family, the Y family. I mean, you're, you're, company and your employer is not your family mm. um, and you know it's even more of a wrench then if they tell you they don't want you anymore so this would wrap around companies where everything is catered for it's very hard to step away and it's almost it's very difficult for you to imagine yourself not working there mm. but it is very important that everybody has a plan for themselves because companies can turn very quickly and decide that you're not part of their plan anymore yeah they can certainly turn on a sixpence. And Paul, this is something mm. you've been writing about recently, um, um, a situation which one of your C-suite directors is dealing with. Do you yes. want to talk us through her her situation and, you know... Yeah, so what Sinead, just to echo what Sinead said is so true, so this person gave 20 years of their career to uh, mm. one of the big multinational tech businesses Somewhere in the States, she was on a spreadsheet and next minute she wasn't in her job. And the personal sacrifices she made, family time, 
not taking other opportunities, everything like that. I would say it's hit her like a death in the family, like grief and going back to what Sinead was talking about, the family thing. I actually think that very few companies walk the walk when it comes to it. Mm. There's a situation with a lot of these tech companies. This is a contagion. I think they're letting people go because other people are letting people go as opposed to the need to do it financially. Mm. So do you think they're exploiting the opportunity to do it because it's... it's There's... I wrote in the currency a, a, a different article about a Harvard professor. He looked at this. He just thinks there's a lot of copycat behaviour. So I have heard in one of the tech businesses that the cost of the business unit from labour cost, Mandy, was 0.5%. Mm. 0.5%. So that is immaterial in any budget. And they, they're letting 20 or 30 people go from that unit. Mm. It doesn't make sense. And they're letting them go and paying them off. And then when the market turns again, they're hiring them at a much bigger salary. It actually doesn't make any economic sense in the long run. No. And just go back to that, uh, that, that, that director had that experience. And we've seen a lot of job losses, Sinead, in recent weeks, uh, particularly in that tech sector, indeed being the, the latest uh, company to, to issue Um redundancies this week um, and that tech industry is an industry no matter what level you're at I always find that they're very committed people like they're invested in their in their business um, it must be very hard for people to deal with when you realise you're you're ultimately you know dispensable in a company sense what advice Sinead would you give to somebody who has been uh, made redundant doesn't feel like they deserve it what could they do? Um, you know if they've made the decision to let you go uh, dismiss you. In fact, you know, just before uh, we started this interview, I was just thinking of all the different names that people use for letting somebody go. There were so many of them. Mm. Um, but uh, the decision has been made. Um, they're not going to go back on it. So it is definitely within your remit as somebody, if this has happened to you, you're going to be extremely shocked, angry, uh, confused, all of those things. As you were saying, Paul, it can feel a little bit like a death in the family. And I actually don't think that that is exaggerating it, some of the clients that we would deal with, just how committed they have been to their companies. So they're not going to change their mind. So what I would say then to clients is to make sure that you're getting everything you can from the company before you go. Mm. Um, and you know, there will be a severance package which will be put in front of you. Take a look at that. Make sure that it includes um, things, for instance, like uh, if you're if you've got health insurance, will they continue to keep that on for a period of time after your redundancy period? You know, so that maybe you get another six months of that. I mean, we've seen that happen. Uh, also, outplacement support for your CV writing, interview, career coaching, all of those facilities are available from larger companies and from mid-sized companies as well. So ask for that. If they're not offering mm. it, they probably will give it to you. Um, but it is, it's very difficult. You know, if you feel that you've been unfairly dismissed, you know, if there wasn't fair grounds for your dismissal, then you know, there's there's uh, avenues that you can follow and actions that you can take. Um, but they are going to be expensive for you because you're going to have to hire a solicitor to look into that for you. Yeah, and you know, there, there, there's a lot of advice out there, I suppose, for, for what you can do after. But just say you're in a company, Paul, and um, you're trying to attract a new CEO or someone into your C-suite. Like, is that getting more difficult to, to get people? Because there's a lot more burden, I think, on, on the C-suite people now than there was maybe years ago to be front-facing, let's say. 
and also an acceptance at business level that the shareholder isn't necessarily the most important stakeholder anymore. So do you feel it's getting more challenging to get people to go into those roles? It, it depends on the company. Employer branding is a big thing now, Mandy. And again, myself and Sinead have talked about company values. You need to live real to them. What candidates are attracted by is our businesses that are scaling that are profitable, that they can go and make a material difference to. And if that story is aligned, you'll get the talent. It's not about money. Money is part of it. Purpose, which is a bit of a HRE word and all that, is key. We have situations now where candidates value more when it's hybrid as opposed to a bigger salary to work in office, for example. You get people are attracted to startups because they think there's a chance that this thing could explode. So they may take a view on their salary for future earnings that they'll make it out and so share options and, and piece like that. So while salary is important, it's not the most important thing for these people at the C-suite. And if the story's right, you will attract the talent. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to me, Mandy Johnston, and this is Taking Stock on News Talk. I'm talking to Paul McArdle, who's managing partner at the panel, and he's also a columnist for The Currency. And we're joined by Sinead English, who's author of CV 101. You've both mentioned this on a couple of occasions, reputation. I'll start with you, Sinead, on this, if I will. Um, at that level, uh, protecting your reputation and managing your reputation is a huge deal. So how can you, if you're dealing with a redundancy situation, manage that reputation if you're in a position that is front-facing and there's often a lot of kind of a public element to these type of roles? Um, Yeah, I mean, one thing that you can do as part of your negotiation when you're leaving the company is to negotiate and agree a communication plan Mm. for the announcement of your departure from the company. So that is agreed in advance and everybody sticks to the script. Mm. Um, so that can that's the first thing that can protect your reputation. The next thing down to the individual themselves is to not badmouth their employer. Uh, it is, it's so easy and tempting to do it because you're feeling very angry and you feel hard done by. Uh, maybe they didn't treat you particularly well on the way out. Um, and your your temptation is to badmouth the employer. But if you go into an interview, and Paul, I'm sure you see this as well, it's your clients. If you go into an interview and the interviewer gets even a sniff of, of you know, bad feeling or venom coming from you towards your previous employer, that's a real red flag mm. to the new employer. So, as you know, bite your tongue stick to the script you've got a line when we're training people to go and do interviews we would practice that line with them or those couple of lines why did you leave your last Mm. company yeah Paul is nodding away here Sinead Uh, that explaining your departure from your previous executive role is an important part of it at having your narrative isn't it Paul it's great advice from Sinead to be Mm. honest with you what happens is they don't have the other side of the story so they're going to assume you're the problem Mm. Uh, and Mm. then that also the timing of things. I have people who are tapping the shoulder, you might be going. And what they should be doing is organising their exit first and concentrating, make sure that's done properly. And then it's going to be quite raw. And the chances of bad mouthing going straight into an interview process is much higher. You need to give yourself a bit of time to go back and think about what you want to do. For C-suite people now who are looking around 
one of the things I'd say is be visible. Go to networking events. Um, get to talk to people in different areas of your business. You know, just get yourself uh, get yourself known and out there. And you'll make yourself, if you can, indispensable to where you're working. Or if you're not indispensable, go find somewhere where you are indispensable. Mm, that's really sound advice. And uh, hopefully this is not something that's going to be happening to any of us anytime soon. But I hope that people took some direction and some advice from, from your very valuable insights. Thank you both very much. That was Paul McArdle, who is Managing Partner at the panel and columnist for The Currency. And that was Sinead English, founder of Hilt Careers and author of CV and Interview Skills 101. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, Sinead. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Boris Johnson was back on the naughty step again this week. After this short break, I'll talk to the London correspondent of the New York Times to get his view on what lies ahead for Johnson's political career. You're welcome back. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, this week, the Commons Privilege Committee in the UK set out the key issues that it wanted to examine in its inquiry into whether Boris Johnson had misled the British Parliament over lockdown parties in Downing Street. Boris Johnson went before that committee and to examine the evidence that he gave and the implication for the former Prime Minister's career in the future. I'm joined now by Stephen Castle, who's London correspondent for the New York Times. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Now, I'm sure you, as I, sat through all of the testimony um, in its its glory. Um, But before we get into what was said and the implications for his career, just uh, remind us, what was the main question that was being asked of the former Prime Minister at this hearing? The main question was a very simple one, and that's whether he lied to Parliament. Uh, Boris Johnson has admitted that when he made various statements to Parliament during the pandemic, this was uh, reassuring them that the parties took place, that he actually misled MPs. Mm. But the question, of course, is did he do this deliberately? Did he do this with intent? And did he do this recklessly? Uh, And so uh, effectively what we had in the committee there was a trial of Boris Johnson's honesty. Uh, and that, of course, um, is, has been a, a question that people have, have asked for, for many months, even years in terms of Boris Johnson. They've questioned his, his honesty. But here, for the first time in his political career, you know, his job, his future was on, on the line. Mm. Um, and uh, those were the questions that he had to satisfy the committee um, in, with his answers. Yeah, and I I was struck yesterday, look, it's very easy for us sometimes to kind of laugh at Boris Johnson's, you know, buffoonery and, you know, he's he's a bit of a, I don't know, certainly here a little bit of a joke character after the Brexit uh, Farago. But like actually what he was talking about yesterday, you know, lying to Parliament is a really, really serious, serious issue. The country, um, in the UK is in really dire difficulties economically. The legacy of COVID for them and his premiership is, is you know, is, is, is all bearing down on the British people right now. So it was actually a very serious day. How would you characterise his demeanour at that testimony yesterday? Well, I think he actually started his the hearing pretty well. I mean, mm. he was quite defiant. He was looking on. He was uh, staring straight at the uh, committee uh, chair, Harriet Harman. Um, and, you know, Boris Johnson is a, a, a class politician. He, you know, he knows a soundbite. And he came out with this 
his soundbite. Initially, uh, you know, he said, hand on heart, I didn't lie. And, and, and that seemed to be the sort of early headline of, of the event. The problem was that the longer the hearing went on, the more detailed the questions became, the more he tended to struggle. And at various points, the exchanges became a little bit tetchy when uh, senior members of parliament were were, were really testing him, were really questioning his his honesty. Mm. honesty. So uh, at, at the end of the day, I don't think it, it, it really worked well for him. Uh, and if you read some of the, the press uh, the following day, even in traditionally supporting newspapers like the Daily Telegraph, the, you know, some of the commentators were talking about a car crash mm. uh, event, uh, maybe putting it a, a little bit... Um, Strongly, but certainly it wasn't his finest hour. No, you certainly got in a, s- a sense he he thought that he could deliver a performance, but uh, they they certainly uh, question him to a level where his stock answers I felt kind of came a bit thin. Uh, the longer it went on, in the report that the committee issued ahead of the session, um, it said it had already seen evidence suggesting that it would have been obvious to him at the time that the events he attended in Number Ten were in breach of official guidance. What was that evidence, and and did they get that through to him? at the committee hearing? Well, I think what what happened was that they focused in on a couple of specific uh, incidents. And what you saw as a, um, when, you, when you were watching the hearing, right at the beginning, you saw a clips from Prime Minister's questions that, of the assurances that Boris Johnson gave. And then members of the committee came in and asked him about specific events. So, for example, one of the areas where he struggled was the leaving party for Lee Kane. Uh, this was an incident where he was pictured uh, holding a glass, toasting uh, farewell. Um, the difficulty for, for Boris Johnson was that Leaving parties weren't really happening at this time in the country. Mm. In the country, we were in in lockdown, and I, I felt he he really did struggle to to justify uh, why he felt attending that event was necessary. He was asked uh, by by one M- MP what advice he would have given had he been asked uh, on, on the podium at Downing Street. Can I hold a leaving party at my company? And he gave an extremely vague and evasive reply to that, saying, yeah. you know, it would yeah. depend on the company's interpretation of, of the guidelines. So I felt he, you know, the longer he went on, the more detail he was pressed on, the more difficulty uh, he had in, in satisfying the MPs. Yeah. Um, his defence also was that Downing Street was very small. I've been in Downing Street on many occasions. And whilst it is small, it's not a cupboard. You know, you can actually, <laughs> you can actually separate. It's, but I guess if you're, if you're putting parties together, it makes it a bit difficult. But of course, we know that the answer to that question uh, put by the committee member would have been he would advise people not to do it but there you go you said at the outset um, Stephen that uh, the main reason he was being asked there yesterday was about his ev- uh, his, his statements in Parliament and, and the House of Commons so what did he say about that what, uh, what was his defence for his statements in the House of Commons well in, in the House of Commons he has essentially assured members of Parliament that all the legal uh, guidance had been followed the rules and the guidance 
Uh, and he sort of admitted in his, his testimony that, that actually he'd slightly messed that, that up and actually meant all the rules had been uh, followed and not necessarily the guidance. Mm. He then talked at some length about how the guidance was rather a, a, a fluid thing, something which, you know, as MPs pointed out, he hadn't really made a point of at the time. I think one of the, the difficulties, the real difficulties that he had with the committee was that they expected that when he had given members of parliament before the House of Commons assurances that all the things that had gone on were in accordance with the rules and the guidance, that he he will he would have been reassured that at a very senior level in the um, in the civil service. But when, when he was questioned on those points and when he was asked, did he, uh, for example, get the guidance of top, the really top civil servants, the cabinet secretary and so forth, he, he admitted that he, did, he didn't. And he relied uh, for one crucial reassurance on uh, his communications chief, Jack Doyle, who, you know, no disrespect to him, isn't really a legal expert. And I think that really surprised some of the, the MPs, particularly Harry Harman, who described the reassurances uh, that um, uh, Boris Johnson had repeated mm. as, in her words, flimsy. Yes, and, and maybe what that reveals is that they were more worried about the perception uh, than the reality of, of what had actually happened. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm talking to Stephen Castle, who's London correspondent for The New York Times. Stephen, I just want to get your assessment and your view of um, what are, you know, his in the totality of his evidence and how it was received. Do you think it was a credible performance? Do you think people will believe him? And when I say people, I don't just mean politicians. Do you think the public will believe him? How do you think the overall assessment of his performance at that uh, committee this week will be? I, I think really that the public has probably made up its mind about Boris Johnson. There are, there are a number of people who, who love him. Uh, and He has a core of supporters in the Conservative Party, uh, a number of whom would like to see him back in Downing Street. Uh, the general public, I think, has rather moved against him if you look at the opinion polls. Mm. Uh, and certainly, if you look at his ratings in terms of competence, in terms of honesty, uh, they're much lower than the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak or the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Uh, so I don't think fundamentally that the performance yesterday will have changed perceptions mm. uh, more broadly. Uh, the critical question is what the committee concludes and therefore what the next step in this process is. Does he face a real, real threat to being ejected from Parliament, which could potentially happen if the uh, committee recommends a uh, serious enough sanction? Mm. And what are the next steps in that? Like, what are the mechanics of it? Who do they report back to? Is there a vote on it? And uh, what's the timescale for that? Well, we're not quite clear when the uh, time, what the timescale is, but we're expecting them to come up with their report probably now, sometime after after the Easter uh, break. Mm. They will then recommend the sanction, and the the crucial thing there is whether they recommend a suspension from the House of Commons for um, ten days, for ten sitting days or more. If they do that. 
there's a possibility that there could be a, what's known as a recall petition and there could be a vote in Boris Johnson's own constituency, uh, Uxbridge, to kick him out of Parliament. Mm. Uh, given the position in the opinion polls and his own personal standing, uh, I think he would be very nervous about fighting such a, a, a by-election. Yeah. If the committee uh, doesn't recommend any sanction at all, or if it recommends a slightly lower sanction, maybe seven or eight days, uh, then that that potential by-election wouldn't happen and it would effectively be something of a slap on the wrist, Mm. uh, albeit a rather embarrassing and slightly humiliating one for a former prime minister whose honesty would have been impugned. Well, really, I, does anything embarrass him um, to the level it would, it would affect most politicians? He did, of course, waver last year when that leadership contest was up and would suggest that he may be biding his time for this to pass and then may reinvent himself. So it really does all depend uh, on, on the outcome of this committee in the first instance as to what happens him, doesn't it? I think it does. I think already before the hearing on Wednesday, the prospects of him being back in Downing Street by the end of the year, which is what a number of his supporters were sort of pretty confidently hoping, if not predicting. I think those were were fading. Mm. Uh, Rishi Sunak was starting to do better. He's had quite a good month or two. I think after that performance yesterday, which suggests that there will probably be some sanction against him from the committee, whether it's a very serious one or not, Mm. after that, it's really, you know, vanishingly unlikely, I think, that Boris Johnson will be back before the next general election. Uh, after that, of course, who, who, who knows? Yeah. But um, his, his prospects have actually diminished. Having said that, of course, Boris Johnson is one of these politicians whose careers have been marked by peaks and troughs. Uh, you know, at various points in the past, people have written him off and been uh, <coughs> uh, found to... To, to be completely uh, wrong-footed. Yeah. You know. Well, no, he's the, he's, the, uh, so he, he's certainly the ultimate survivor, but I just think I'll certainly remember him more for the troughs than the peaks. Can I just ask you <laughs> finally, uh, if I can, Stephen, just, uh, and you alluded this uh, to this in the piece that you wrote this week. Um, he also, again, uh, seemed to, to suggest toward the end of his evidence that he wouldn't necessarily respect or accept the committee's findings um, and, and some of his people perhaps undermining the process. Uh, what did you make of that part of, of his contribution? I thought that was a very interesting um, contribution from Boris Johnson. It was a, l- a little bit um, of from the populist playbook. I'm not sure it was tactically very sensible mm. uh, because I think um, the committee may be emboldened by that to actually proceed with a more serious sanction than perhaps they were envisaging. Uh, it would suit a lot of people if actually there wasn't this by-election threat hanging over Boris Johnson. Mm. Um, but I thought it also indicated that maybe if that the worst comes to pass, uh, uh, for Boris Johnson, and there is a serious sanction, there is a recall petition, he has to fight for his seat again, that he he might actually then denounce the whole process, perhaps not even contest the seat if he doesn't think he's going, going to win it. So I think he's left open all his options there, including uh, perhaps a more populist attack on on 
the committee if it doesn't go his way. Yeah, populist attack by Boris Johnson. Who, who'd, who'd contemplate such a move? But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Stephen Castle, the London correspondent for the New York Times. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. And after the break, TikTok's under pressure in a number of countries. We'll discuss it all after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, TikTok CEO has said it faces a pivotal moment as the growing number of lawmakers from countries all across the world seek to ban the popular app over national security concerns, the latest being the UK and the Dutch government. But what are the issues that it's dealing with it? And is it as simple as just deleting the app from your phone if you're worried? To discuss all of this, we're joined now by Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and communicator specialising in digital culture. Chris, you're very welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Now, we saw this week several more jurisdictions, including the UK and the Netherlands, have restricted the use of social media, uh, the social media app on government devices due to data protection concerns and issues. What exactly are the risks that they're worried about, Chris? It's difficult to say because they haven't fully made it clear. Um, you know, there's no real evidence that has been presented that would, would sort of suggest what we're aiming at, although there is this assumption uh, that they keep saying and successive governments are saying that um, they are concerned about uh, TikTok's sort of Chinese origin, its links to China, the fact that it could, in theory, potentially send data back to China. Now, it's worth pointing out, all of those things are risks that we knew about three years ago, mm. two years ago, one year ago, one month ago. And so the the why now is the big kind of unanswered question. And, and, and so far, nobody has actually come up with any kind of definitive answer to that, which makes you think possibly it might be not necessarily national security, but could be something like geopolitics. Mm. And what's your assessment of it? Why do you think it's happening now? I think it's probably because uh, China flew a, a balloon over North America back in January because Xi Jinping has travelled to Moscow this week and kind of buddied up with Vladimir Putin. And we've realised that China, the state, is a, a risk and China, the state, is a pretty abhorrent place that you know, commits uh, you know, genocide against uh, Uyghur Muslims that kind of suppresses and tramples down dissent amongst its general population. But then we have kind of made this leap to say that TikTok is China, therefore TikTok should be kind of cracked down on. And I think it's, you know, it's an interesting point of view. We're, we're trying almost here to to kind of press almost sanctions, it mm. seems, in a weird way uh, mm. through TikTok. But the you know, the company itself, I, I don't think really matters all that much to China. And I don't think that the connections are quite what people think they are to, to make this a real body blow. Yeah, because it's amazing that a, a social media platform is a is a tool in a political geo geopolitical warfare on the one hand, and you'd say, well, you know, that's a bit trite. But on the other hand, TikTok also has a mass reach and a mass audience, so it makes perfect sense. So let's look at the different positions. You've got the US, as high up as the uh, head of the FBI, the director of the FBI, uh, uh, Christopher Ray saying that it could be an, a national security risk. And on the other hand, you've got Beijing then accusing Washington of spreading disinformation. This week, their CEO uh, was before uh, Congress making his petition. W- what happened there? 
he got an absolute pounding. Mm. <laughs> to to be blunt, uh, the 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 politicians, uh, the Congress members who uh, were questioning him, uh, barely let him answer the questions that they they posed of him. They tried to reduce really quite complicated technical questions about how the app works into simple yes or no answers, which is is um, kind of doing a disservice to everybody, truthfully, uh, mm. in, in trying to understand things. Um, and and so it was kind of difficult. Uh, from kind of an outsider point of view to, to see really what was the point. It, it kind of was a little bit like a mugging, uh, mm. an attempt for, for kind of politicians to to say their sound bites, to get one over on this person who they kind of see as the physical embodiment of China, even though he represents an app that purports not to be connected to China and is himself Singaporean. Um, and yeah, it just didn't really work for me. Yeah, I saw, I saw, I saw somebody asking him, does the Wi-Fi pick up all the data? Uh, anyway, um, we see there in the US that uh, in the last few months, uh, TikTok was banned on federal government devices. And as I said, there's other countries that are following that. But the Biden administration has been more threatening, I suppose, than others to maybe introduce an outright ban. Do you think that um, that something might happen? And what are the conditions that might assuage the Americans to, to not actually ban it everywhere in America? Yeah, if you'd asked me this on Thursday morning before the hearing took place, yeah. I would have said that I thought a, a ban was probably likely, um, but, you know, things could have changed. After the hearing on Thursday, um, I, I basically would have told you, absolutely, this is happening. Um, right. you know, the, the, this is this seems like a, a closed book to me. I, th- I think they've already made up their minds, the United States politicians, that this is something that needs to be done um, for their national security, whether or not that is actually based in, in reality. Um I think you know what will happen is we will probably uh, certainly won't see TikTok taking this lying down. Um, you know they've previously faced the risk of an outright ban uh, in the United States uh, in 2020 when Donald Trump tried to do this. Um, they contested it in court. Uh, essentially ran down the clock to the extent that Donald Trump lost the US presidential election before uh, any ban could be put in force and it kind of just got quietly swept to to one side by the Biden administration. There is, of course, also, Mandy, this uh, potential uh, get-out cause, which is uh, that TikTok could divest its Chinese ownership in uh, the company and and kind of become a a full-blooded American firm with with no Chinese oversight whatsoever. Uh, Curiously kind of uh, market interventionist from from a, a country that claims to be kind of you know land of the free and home of the brave and all of that stuff. But um, I don't think that will fly either because China does have somewhat of a say over its kind of homegrown countries, and they've said on Thursday that they think that should uh, you know not be the case, and that they would kind of uh, object strongly to the idea that TikTok would be put into a forced sale. Mm. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnson. And I'm talking to Chris Stokel Walker, who's a freelance journalist and communicator specialising in digital culture. And we're talking about the events surrounding TikTok this week. There's another dimension to this is where, you know, the US takes a stand and then everybody tends to follow suit. But here in Europe earlier this month, uh, the European Commission and also the European Council decided that it was going to ban TikTok from work related devices. OK, so then a dichotomy arises because some of the member states, some very senior people within the member states continue to use it as a vehicle to speak to their electorate. Even here, I just checked before uh, 
we started this interview, our minister, Simon Harris, who's, a, a, who's an acting minister for justice, has 90,000 uh, followers who he communicates with regularly. So where do you see this going in terms of governments, uh, you know, uh, banning them at government devices and then politicians continuing to use them for electoral purposes? Yeah, and I think you know, the, the minister using that uh, in spite of a, a ban is kind of a you know, perfect example of how we're trussing up um, a geopolitical concern as a national security risk. If it was a, a genuine national security risk, it would be nowhere near any of these politicians' phones. And we had the same sort of thing happening in the UK with Grant Chaps, the energy secretary here, who uh, you know, essentially said he was going to flout the ban. He was going to use it on a personal phone, um, mm. although you know, lots of politicians mix business and pleasure when it comes to their devices. Uh, I think that the, you know, if a US ban were to come in a whole US ban rather than just a kind of governmental one, I think it would set a really interesting precedent and one that I think probably other countries would follow because we've seen them already mimicking uh, US decisions on these sorts of things. The fact that we have these governmental bans is largely because you know, the US decided they were going to put in a federal government ban because they'd had lots of individual states saying that uh, you know those working in government would not be able to access it. And I think the the kind of the the government level bans that we've seen in recent weeks were kind of a comfortable halfway house for those who wanted to show their support for the US while also not getting into the tricky situation of potentially facing a legal challenge for doing an outright ban. Mm. But if if we start to see the US taking these steps, I think they'll probably be a bit more emboldened to take that leap to chance their, their arm and to kind of go, well, actually, we probably can get away with this. Or even if we can't, we can kind of in court point to the fact that everybody else is doing it. So therefore, we thought it was a sensible thing to do. And that legal aspect of it, what are TikTok saying about that? Have they threatened uh, countries with a legal challenge? At the minute, they haven't said anything about this. Obviously, we have the precedent back in 2020 in the US where they they, they did uh, contest this because it was seen as a, a massive, massive issue. Uh, you know, they, they, they kind of made a lot of uh, noise when they were banned around about a similar time, June 2020, in India, which was at the time kind of one of their biggest markets, some 200 million users. Uh, that was banned more for kind of geopolitics. And so I think you know, TikTok decided they couldn't really contest that because the Indian government was pretty upfront about it they said it's because we have a border dispute with china we decided that we don't want this app anymore not because of a a national security concern that was kind of fabricated out of thin air um so i think you know it's kind of inconceivable that tiktok would take this lying down not least because they i think they firmly believe they're in the right Mm. Uh, i think that they believe there is no evidence of this and you know, this is a an important company. This is something that makes an awful lot of money, and you know the people uh, who work there are employed across the world. There are you know tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands in some cases, and so I think probably they would see it as kind of you know too important a thing to just uh, accept, and, and and probably would fight on. Mm. Now, look, they haven't made much comment about it. They're as most Chinese companies are. They're they're traditionally very conservative when it comes to to comment. But uh, Sean Chu, the CEO this week in his testimony, what was what was his approach? What was his demeanour? I'm just trying to compare it to say when Zuckerberg was called before a similar committee. Was he very open and willing to engage? 
uh, he was he was kind of similar to Mark Zuckerberg in terms of his approach, uh, where yeah, he was very very polite. Uh, he was explaining you know, congressperson or congressman or congresswoman to each each person and answered, predicating his an- his answers with kind of a uh, a very very formal kind of acceptance of their their power. Um, but then he was also like Mark Zuckerberg in that you know um, when he was being asked to answer questions with a, a straight yes or no that he thought were impossible to do, he would kind of stick to his talking points uh, to his kind of more discursive responses uh, which didn't go down particularly well I do think that there was kind of an interesting element uh, to this which is that you know, the Congress people were much more strident in attacking uh, Xu Xu uh, in, in a way that I haven't mm. seen with any other big tech executive and you know, this could partly be um, you know, the, the fact that uh, we're through the looking glass now with big tech and we've kind of recognised the issues involved and we've grown a bit impatient about it but I also do kind of wonder to what extent they would have done that with a, a kind of an American born white CEO in, mm. in many ways Absolutely yeah absolutely the geopolitics coming into it very rawly there um, I just want to finish with, with what might seem like a very simple question, but um, maybe it's a generational thing. Uh, I I am on TikTok. I have used it of of occasion, but I'm not somebody who follows it assiduously in the way that I would look at Twitter or Facebook. Um, so so can you just explain to me? Um, Firstly, what is the attraction, the allure of this, why so many people use it and why it has become so successful? And the most important thing I wanted to ask you today is what is the thing that makes this platform, in your view, dangerous to the world as they see it uh, that other platforms don't? I think it's... um the the two things are kind of intertwined, Mandy, in, in an interesting way. So, you know, what makes it so interesting and so powerful and so potent to users is the fact that it, it gets to know you quite well and it encourages you to dwell longer on video. So, um, you know, if we take Facebook or Instagram, for instance, um, you know, the, the videos that you see are comparatively small or the photographs that you see are comparatively small. They take up only part of the screen. They can be relatively long in the case of YouTube for instance as well um and and they kind of you know they allow you to be easily distracted um tiktok kind of constantly uh gets you engaged um it's kind of like a, a steady stream of endless videos all of them are relatively short and therefore you never get really bored of them they are full screen so there's no opportunity for you to kind of drift away your attention you have to kind of passively log out or kind of exit the app in that way and i think you know that is in part what worries uh, many of these people who believe that tiktok is a is a threat uh, they kind of see it as a kind of master manipulation tool if put into the wrong hands um, that kind of overlooks the fact that state-sponsored campaigns uh, of disinformation and propaganda exist on many different platforms but i think the the fact that you know tiktok is quite so arresting Mm. Uh, getting our attention is what makes people so worried about it. Well, I'm sure there's a bit of a way to go on this one still. But for now, we're going to leave it there. That was Chris Stokel-Walker, freelance journalist and communicating specialist in digital culture. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and now why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. And my thanks as always to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the world of gaming. But up next, it's Jonathan McRae with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with all of your Sunday newspapers on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.